Um, today's scripture reading is taken from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. In the things that have now been announced to you, through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is God's word. Samantha, thanks for reading scripture for us. And a very good morning to you all. Good to see you all here. Uh, so good to gather in person and to uh, spend the morning together with you all. Let's uh, pray again and prepare our hearts as we come to the word together. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you indeed that you are the God who has spoken. And Father, we pray that as we come to your word, we ask that you would prepare us, that you would open our hearts, that you would give us uh, sight, spiritual sight, that we would see the glory of Christ. Father, we pray that you would grant us the spirit of revelation and of knowledge, uh, grant us the eyes of faith, enlighten the eyes of our heart, that we may know the hope to which you have called us in Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. I think every Singaporean male who has done national service knows the feeling, you know, the heaviness of heart, the vague sense of foreboding as one draws nearer and nearer to the gate of the army camp on a Sunday night. You know, this booking-in feeling is the equivalent of you know, Monday morning blues for many of us. Now, how do I get over my booking-in feeling when I was in NS? You know, I would look forward to the weekend to fix my thoughts on the coming two days of the weekend when I would have uninterrupted sleep and be free from the rigours of training. I think some of us may, be, may already be looking forward to next weekend as we prepare to start work tomorrow. I think we often get through tough times by looking forward, by thinking about what's to come. And what gets us going, or what keeps us going, is the sense that there is something better that lies ahead of us. If there was nothing better to look forward to, I think it's easy to become really discouraged or to even fall into despair. 
you know, I have two boys who are you know, getting, to, getting into exam seasons and they're, they're looking forward to the end of the exams and what comes after the exams, you know, like freedom, you know, free from studies, free from doing their work and they can do whatever they want. Right? They're looking forward to that. Some of us may be looking forward to the easing of travel restrictions so that we can go out again after many months of just being stuck in this country. You know, hope helps us to press on and not give up. But what is our hope in life and death? You know, as we asked the question earlier on in the service, you know, what are we setting our hopes on? And think about our hopes. Can, can our hopes withstand the trials and tribulations that we will face in this broken and fallen world? You know, think about the, how durable our hopes will be. Will they last us? Will they endure uh, the test of life in this world? As we heard last week from the first two verses of First Peter, Jesus' followers are elect exiles. And we are elect because God the Father chose us in Christ to belong to Him as His people. And we are also exiles because we, although we live in the world, we are not of the world. We are foreigners and strangers who are passing through because our citizenship is in heaven. We are sojourners. Uh, journeying through the wilderness of this world until we arrive at our heavenly homeland. But being a pilgrim people in a hostile world isn't easy. And these Christians that Peter is writing to were suffering for their faith. They faced rejection, abuse, and injustice. Uh, not from the government, but just from people around them. Right? This was social, there was a lot of social pressure on them to either give up the gospel, turn back, to return to their former way of life, or to give in to the culture around them, to conform to what society expected of them, to just become like the rest of the people around them. So Peter's writing to a group of rather disheartened Christians, Christians who are laboring under uh, the call to follow Jesus. You know, and what Hope can Peter extend to these disheartened believers? You know, what, what better thing can he hold out to them that will encourage them to press on and not give up? You know, what better thing can he hold out to us as we think about our coming week, as we think about coming months, years? What hope do we have to, that enables us to press on through the changing seasons of life? You know, notice how Peter doesn't begin his letter by describing the difficult circumstances. You know, obviously, there's a lot he could say about the tough times that these believers were facing, but he doesn't start there. Neither does Peter start by telling these Christians what they should do in tough times. You know, yes, there are many instructions that he will give later on in the letter, but he doesn't begin there either. He doesn't start by giving us a laundry list of you know, 10 steps to get over tough times, right? 10 things you can do. No, but rather Peter begins by blessing God. Right? Verse 3, he blesses God. And we, we are elect exiles only because of what this triune God has done, as, as we heard last week, Father, Son, and Spirit working together for our salvation. Therefore, it is very appropriate that Peter begins not by focusing on the difficulties that we will face, not by telling us what we should do, but Peter begins by praising the God of our salvation. And I think 
This gives us a clue uh, to how we should live as elect exiles, right? Our starting point is always how should we praise God? How, how is our life characterized by worship? Before we even think about our troubles, before we even think about our response to our troubles in this world, we begin with worship. We praise the God of our salvation. And this is especially so because when trials come, our difficult circumstances can often make us lose sight of God. Right? You think about yourself when... When you go through tough times, maybe the first instinct isn't to praise God, to thank Him. Maybe the first instinct is to make a plan, right? To, to kind of fix whatever problem we're going through, to make ourselves feel better. But Peter wants to you know, reset that for us. Right? He says our first instinct should be to look to God and to praise Him, whatever our circumstances because oftentimes when we go into troubles, our view of God can shrink to the size of our problems. And the larger our problems loom, the smaller God seems to become. But true hope, you know, this hope that Peter holds out to us, true hope is built on a big view of God. And Peter begins by helping us to see God's greatness and to see the greatness of what he has done, is doing, and will do for his people. You know, we have a practice of singing the doxology in our services. You know, we do it every week. And I think one, because we do it so often, so regularly, I think there's a danger that we take it for granted. But there's a, there's a really good reason why we sing the doxology every week. You know, we sing the same words, right? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. We sing it in good seasons of life. We sing it in bad seasons of life, and we sing it week after week. It, it, it is a constant reminder to us, lest we forget, that regardless of our circumstances, we continue to praise God from whom all blessings flow. So the next time we sing a doxology, let's, let's really sing it. We really mean it. Right? This is not just something that we do week after week in service, but something that reminds us that life is doxological. Right? We, we praise God regardless of our circumstances. And it's very striking that you notice we sing the doxology after the offering, right? which kind of tells us that, that we're giving money away for the work of the gospel, and we praise God as we give money away for the work of the gospel. It, it's again, it's a very powerful reminder that our life doesn't consist in what we have, in what we own. But even as we give up the things of this world, we can praise God, right? So it's, it's a very powerful moment in our service. And I pray that as we do that week after week, God will press upon our hearts why we do so. Uh, it, it's a very significant part of our service. The joy of the Lord is our strength. So verses 3 to 12 are one long sentence in the Greek, praising God. And, and Peter begins, Blessed, you know, praise, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Peter showing us how we are to live as elect exiles. We are to live a life of worship to our great God. Commenting on verse 3, one pastor, David Helm, wrote, When you bless God in Christ, you come home. It's a wonder, that's a beautiful ex statement explaining this verse. We are exiles, but when we praise God, we come home. It's as if our exile is over. 
Why? Because as Deuteronomy 33 tells us, the eternal God is our dwelling place. He is our home. And every time we praise Him, we are reminded that yes, He is our home. And yes, though we are exiles in this world, our true home is found in God and He is our rest. The eternal God is our dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. When we praise God, we turn our gaze off our circumstances and we look by faith to our merciful Heavenly Father. And indeed, you know, Peter says, he goes on to say in verse 3, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Once we were dead in our sins, God's righteous judgment against us, but God in His mercy did not give us what our sins deserve. He did not leave us in our state of condemnation, but He graciously gave us His Son. Jesus came not to be served, but He came to serve, to, to lay down His life for sinners like us. That, beloved, is evidence of God's mercy toward us. And Jesus died on the cross to bear God's judgment against sin so that we can be made right with God, so that we can be forgiven and cleansed if we trust in Him. Now, therefore, we praise God who has given us this new life through Jesus Christ. And you notice how Peter calls our hope a living hope. Right? Why is it living? Because Jesus rose from the dead in victory over sin and death, we will also live with Him. We have a living hope because Jesus lives. It is not wishful thinking. It is not a shot in the dark. It is not a leap of faith. But it's a living hope built on the objective truth of Jesus' resurrection. So the hope that we have doesn't depend on how we feel. Some days we feel better. Some days we don't feel so good. But this hope that we have is based on the objective truth, the reality of Jesus' resurrection. And this is the hope that Peter holds out. To these believers, you have a living hope because your Saviour is alive. Because He is not dead. He's risen. Jesus' resurrection guarantees our hope that we shall certainly be raised with Christ in glory when He returns. You know, beloved, we're too easily satisfied with the things of this world. You know, we often set our hopes too low on the things of this world. I, I think we're selling ourselves short when we do that. You know, but perhaps we're not thinking of God in a big enough way. Or we're just discouraged by trials you know, because we have hopes on the things of this world that come and go, that don't finally fulfill us. So in order to encourage us to press on through this world, Peter wants us to know the hope that we have in Christ. You not just know it kind of intellectually, that yeah, yeah, I know the gospel and you know, I can kind of tell you the gospel. Not, not just to know in our heads you know, intellectually what the gospel is or what this hope that we have is, but to really know it in our hearts right? so that our hearts are inflamed with great devotion to God because we, we know the hope that is ours through Christ to, to allow our hearts to be moved to, to, to fix our hearts on this amazing hope that we have so that we begin to live our lives differently 
because our hearts have been so moved by this living hope that we have. And that's our prayer for us this morning as we come to this text, that our hearts would be moved as we consider the nature of the hope that we have in Christ. So three things about this hope as we look through the rest of the passage. Our living hope, number one, assures us of future glory. Our living hope gives us joy in present trials. And our living hope is the fulfillment. It fulfills God's past promises, future, present, and past. So number one, our living hope assures us of future glory. Verses 4 and 5. You know, what we're looking forward to will shape the way we live today. I think this is one of the reasons why we exercise, right? Exercise, you know, some of us really enjoy exercise, but some of us don't, right? And, and the thought of exercise, you know, it kind of doesn't really excite us. But we still exercise. Why? Because we are hoping in uh, the benefits of what exercise will bring, even if we don't always enjoy it right away. But we don't usually reap the benefits of exercise immediately when we start. In fact, it can be difficult to start exercising because when we start, we feel our aches, we feel uh, our bodies, <laughs> we, we feel the pains in our joints when we start exercising. And it's difficult to get off the couch and to do something. Right? It's easier just to batch over the weekend. But we discipline ourselves and we persevere to exercise because we are hoping in the benefits that exercise will bring and that hope of better health changes how we live today. It makes us exercise today, even if we don't always reap the benefits. And the same for the Christian life as well. The hope that we have, this living hope, should change how we live today. You know, beloved, I, I put it to us that without hope, uh, the Christian life will not make sense. Think, think, think about what, how you live or how, how God calls us to live as Christians. Right? Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. The, the question to ask is, why? Is it worth it? You know, if I deny myself, it means I can't maximize my pleasure in this life. If I take up the cross, it means I need to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Why? You know, why bother doing all that? Do we have something better that we can look forward to? You know, if you think about it in an investment sense, this, you know, this costs us quite a bit. What are the returns on this investment? Is it really worthwhile? And so I put it to us that without hope, the Christian life will not make sense. Why take up your cross? Why deny yourself? If, there's, if we're not hoping in anything better, then just live for today, right? Maximize your pleasure in this life. Seek your own kingdom. Build your own kingdom because there's nothing better to look forward to. Live for today. Right? That's the message of hedonism. That's why Paul says, if, 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 if this present life is all that there is, then Paul says of Christians, we are of all people most to be pitied because we're not living for this present life. We're setting our hopes, or we should set our hopes, on something far better. If, if this present life is all that there is, then do what Isaiah says, right, in Isaiah 22, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. 
But what if we have a hope of future glory? What if we have a sure hope of something far better? Will that change the way we live today? Will that change our goals, our ambitions? What difference will that make to our lives now? What is the hope that we have? God will make all things new in the new heaven and new earth. We will be resurrected. We will be glorified together with our Lord Jesus Christ. We will be fully saved, body and soul. We shall be with God forever in the new creation, in perfect peace and joy. Beloved, this is the hope of future glory. And, and this hope should begin to show itself in how we live today. This hope should encourage us to keep following Jesus, even if it means suffering for the gospel's sake. And we can be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because we know, we know that in the Lord, our labor is not in vain. Because we know, we are assured that our labor is not in vain. We are assured that whatever we give up, whatever we suffer for, for the sake of the gospel in this life, it is not in vain. Because we will be raised together with Christ, we have a living hope. Now, therefore, Peter highlights our hope of a glorious inheritance in verse 4. Now, he tells us, several things about the inheritance that we have. It is imperishable. It is eternal. Now, I love the stanza from Amazing Grace. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. That is an imperishable inheritance. And this inheritance is undefiled. It is not corrupted by sin or its consequences. I think one of the most beautiful pictures of what this looks like is in Revelation 21, where it says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And the city has no need of sun, or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. They will bring into it the glory and the honour of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That is an uncorruptible, incorruptible inheritance, something that is not corrupted, by sin and its consequences. No more death, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more disease, no more pain. That's what we're looking forward to. Now, ancient Rome was called the eternal city. Um, you know, perhaps you have a chance to visit, you know, perhaps you visited Rome before, or maybe you're planning a visit once these restrictions lift. You know, if you go to Rome, you find the ruins of, uh, you know, all the former buildings, right? You, you go to the Colosseum, you see the, the Roman Forum and, and many other uh, ancient landmarks. But now, when you go to Rome, its majestic ruins are mere monuments to its past glories. You know, the eternal city is not carrying its age very well. In fact, modern Rome 
has uh, kind of crumbling infrastructure. And I read an article recently about how, you know, they're thinking about how they can rejuvenate the city because it's, it's really aging. Right? So much for being the eternal city. Right? Even the most impressive of human achievements will pass away. But Peter tells us that we have an inheritance that is unfading. Unfading. It will never suffer the ravages of time because God himself keeps this inheritance for us. Remember when Jesus says in the Gospels, you know, I go before you to prepare a place for you. He tells that to his disciples. That is the assurance that Peter gives us here, that this treasure, this inheritance is kept for us by God himself and God will see to it that this inheritance will not fade that this inheritance will stand the test of time. You know, more than that, we ourselves are being guarded through faith by God's power for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 5. So although we will suffer as we journey through the wilderness of this world, you know, God will keep us to the end. Right? Our assurance, our security, our hope is not ultimately dependent on us, what we can do to kind of keep ourselves, but rather our, secure, our security is founded on what God will do to keep His people safe to the end. He will preserve us until Jesus returns to complete our salvation. You know, he will hold us fast, especially when times when we feel that we are weak and we can't carry on times when we are discouraged, times when we are exhausted, times when we are languishing, Peter reminds us that we are kept by the power of God. You know, beloved, this is encouragement for us, whatever our circumstances. God will bring the, the fullness of His glory. God will bring the majesty of His character. God will bring all his resources to bear on our preservation. That is something that we, we should really meditate on and give thanks for. That's tremendous encouragement for us. And when Jesus returns, the glory of our salvation will be revealed. And this glory is when we become just like Christ. As John tells us in his letter, 1 John Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And God is keeping us for that day when Jesus returns and we will become just like Him. But God's protection shouldn't make us passive or presumptuous. You know, notice how Peter says, we, God guards us, how? Through faith. Through faith, meaning that we are responsible for trusting in Christ while we await His return. You know, just because God guards us doesn't mean that we can just let go and let God and say, okay, you know, just do it. I, I can just do whatever I want because I, you know, I just trust that you'll do it. No, Peter wants us to realize that God will guard us, but God guards us how? Through our exercise of faith in Him as we continue to trust and obey Christ as we patiently wait for his return. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. You know, faith doesn't earn the promises, but faith is the hand 
that clings to God's promises. Faith is the conviction that God will keep His Word. And because our hope is sure, we can live by faith as exiles in the world until the day when our faith will turn to sight. We will not always live by faith. Because one day we shall see and our hope, our faith will turn to sight. You know, if, if you are not a Christian this morning, you know, thank you for joining us. You, know, you could be here. Thanks for coming for the service. Or you could, be at, you could be at home or somewhere else watching the service online. I'm grateful that you are here and kind of listening in as we hear from God's Word. If, if you're not a Christian, I want you to think about this. What hope are you living for? Or what hopes are you living for? And our earthly hopes will often disappoint us. Our earthly hopes will not stand the test of life. Things happen, and oftentimes our hopes will let us down. But what the hope that Peter holds out to us endures, this is the hope that we have. Will we hope in Christ? This is an invitation for us to turn to this Saviour who gives us a hope that will never fade away, that will never perish, that will always endure. So whatever our circumstances, Peter invites us to turn to Christ for this hope, to trust Him, to obey Him, to give ourselves to Him and to rest in Him. Because this hope gives us joy in present trials, verses 6 to 9, which is our second point. This hope of salvation gives us joy in present trials. As Peter says in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Peter speaks honestly about how believers will suffer. Peter doesn't dress up the Christian life. He doesn't deny that we will suffer for the sake of the faith. Our joy is mingled with pain as we live in this fallen world. The reality of our future hope doesn't diminish the distress caused by our suffering now. As it says in Acts 14, it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. We, we follow Jesus, the suffering servant, whose cross came before the crown. And Peter says Christians will suffer various trials. Right? Various because it's not just a one-dimensional kind of suffering that we all go through, but different ways, different forms that our hardship will take in this life. Various trials. We may suffer the loss of provision. I think some of us know the pain of losing a job. We may suffer the loss of power or position. Because we follow Jesus, our influence, our position, our status is marginalized. We're set aside, put on the shelf because we follow Jesus. We suffer the loss of permanence. We see the passing of loved ones, of family, of friends. We ourselves are growing older day by day. We suffer the loss of permanence. And then we, we struggle with temptations to sin. We struggle with temptations to doubt. We struggle with temptation to despair, to be discouraged or to lose hope in this world. Some of us may be unjustly treated at work because we refuse to do 
unethical things. We, 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 we don't want to fit in to the work culture. We do things differently and therefore we may be passed over when it comes to promotion time. We may suffer verbal or physical abuse because we would rather obey Jesus than to fear men. Our family and friends may ostracize us because we seek to be distinct from the world. We, we don't play by the world's rules. We choose to live lives differently. And therefore, we may be marginalized for that. And then there's also the general, kind of more general sort of suffering where we experience the effects of sin day to day. And we live in a pandemic where around us we see disease and death, and we ourselves may be afflicted by various ailments. So, beloved, we, we suffer various trials. This is normal for the Christian life. And, and Peter wants us to see that. Right? He says in verse 6 very plainly that Christians will suffer. And I think this is encouragement for us as well as, as a Christian community that when we suffer, we don't have to suffer on our own. We don't have to suffer in silence, but we can share our burdens with one another. You know, we can talk about our suffering with our brothers and sisters because we suffer together as God's people and we encourage one another and we walk with one another through the valleys of pain, whatever our suffering may be. So don't feel as if you have to keep your suffering to yourself. You know, don't feel as if you have to come to church and present a strong front right, to other people. No, I think this passage invites us to, to bear one another's burdens, to know that suffering is normal. It's normal for the Christian life. And therefore, we need the encouragement of our brothers and sisters. We need their encouragement and we can also encourage them as we walk through this wilderness together. And we can take heart that our suffering isn't due to blind fate. It is not the result of random circumstances or accidents or chance. No, but rather our loving Heavenly Father is the one who wisely leads us through the valleys of this life. He loves us. He knows what is best for each one of us. You notice in verse 6, those, those two words, if necessary. If necessary. Of course, you know, if, if, if it were left to us, we would say that no suffering is necessary. Right? We don't need it. But God is the one who is saying these words, right? God is the one who says, necessary, needed. Because God knows, our loving Father knows what we need in order to become more and more like Jesus. You know, our suffering is not purposeless. When, when we suffer, Peter says it is necessary because our loving Father brings trials into our lives in order to grow us, to sanctify us, to strengthen us, to remind us of the hope that we have in Him and not the things of this world. But this, this suffering is necessary in order for us to become more and more like Christ. Not random, not accidental, but the design of a loving and gracious and wise Heavenly Father who doesn't always give us what we want but gives us what we need in order to follow Him. I think earlier on we, we sang in one of the hymns, our pain is not wasted. Right? Our pain is not wasted. It, it is used in the sovereign hands of a loving Father for our good and for His glory. Trials are a crucible for our faith. Peter compares 
this to gold that is refined by the flames of a furnace. And he says to us that our faith is even more precious than that, even more precious than refined gold. Because God works through trials to purify us. You know, this is wonderful stanza from the hymn, How Firm a Foundation, that says, When through fiery trials my, thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. And God says, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. You know, trials prove the genuineness of our faith. They expose our false hopes and help us to realize that God is the one on whom we set our hopes. God is the one on whom we must rely. You know, our trials help to strip away these false hopes that we often put our confidence in and helps, you know, helps to clarify the one in whom we should trust. That's why, as we will sing later on, when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And this is the consistent testimony in the rest of the New Testament. Right? Paul says in Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. James says, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So, beloved, we can trust in God to work through our trials to make us more like Jesus. And when we suffer for righteousness' sake, we are walking in Jesus' footsteps. Now, Peter says later on in chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Now, Peter talks about walking by faith, not by sight. Right? He says, even though we don't see Jesus now, we love Him. Even though we don't see Jesus now, we rejoice in Him. That's what he says in verse 8. And we're looking forward to His return, and our faith will be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 7. When Christ is revealed in His glory, we will rejoice in Him fully. We'll become just like Him. And on that day, Jesus will receive all the praise and honour when we are glorified with Him. And Peter wants us to see our present suffering in the light of our living hope. You know, notice how in verse 6, he says, our trials are for a little while. You know, three very encouraging little words, right? For a little while. You know, one of the interns, Sam, recently pointed me to a great quote by C.S. Lewis that closes the, you know, his series of books, The Chronicles of Narnia. And this quote by Lewis sums up very well what Peter is saying in these verses. Right. Let, me, let me quote this for us. Just listen as I read this. So C.S. Lewis writes, you know, at the end of Chronicles of Narnia, he says, And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say 
that they all live happily ever after. But for them, meaning the characters in the story, but for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. Only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on and on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Friends, is this, is, is this how we view the story of our lives? You know, is, is our time on earth, do we think of our time on earth in this fallen world as the main story? Do we think that this is the best story we have? So if this is the best story we have, then make the most of it, right? Maximize your life in this existence because this is the best story you have. Is this how we think about our life in this wilderness? I think Lewis helps us to realize that this story, this present story, is the prologue. This story is the prologue. Our real story has yet to begin. This is only the beginning of the real story. And when Jesus returns and our living hope comes to fruition, that, beloved, is the real story. Are we living as though that is the real story? If you think about what difference that will make in how we live if we understand that to be the story that truly begins. And that's what Peter wants us to see when he says, our trials in this life are for a little while. This life is for a little while before eternity comes. Compared to eternity, our present life is brief. It's mere prologue. You know, beloved, we are destined for glory. You know, Paul reminds us our light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Therefore, we need not fear even though we walk through the valley. Even now, we can rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory because we have a living hope in Christ. And God will bring us safely home. And then on that day, our real story begins. And finally, more briefly, God for this living hope fulfills God's past promises. Verses 10 to 12. Now, we've, we've spoken about our living hope. You know, we've spoken about the salvation that will be ours when Jesus returns. You know, but how can we be so sure? How can we be so sure of our salvation? And in these verses, in 10 to 12, Peter says the Old Testament prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be ours searched and inquired carefully concerning this salvation. You know, the prophet spoke of how God promised to save his people by sending his son, the servant king, and they were moved by the Spirit of God, and as the Spirit moved in them, they predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. I think we see uh, prophecies like this in places like Isaiah, Isaiah 53, that talks about how the Messiah would be pierced for our transgressions, how he would be high and lifted up and shall be exalted, right? the sufferings and the subsequent glories. And the prophets themselves longed to see the fulfillment of God's promises. And as they patiently waited, they searched the Scriptures. They, they, they longed, they sought to learn more about the person of Christ and when He would come. But we know 
that all the prophets died in faith. They, they died never having seen for themselves the fulfillment of God's promises. They never experienced the full joy of the fulfillment of seeing the Messiah come and accomplishing the salvation of God's people. They, they never saw that. They all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Yeah, but Peter says this about Christians, that we live in the days of fulfillment. Why? Because Jesus has come. Jesus has already died. Jesus has risen from the grave. Jesus has been exalted to God's right hand. Jesus now rules as King forever and He will return in glory. Beloved, we live on this side of Jesus' death and resurrection and we live having seen you know, in Scripture the fulfilment of God's promises. We are in a much better position than the Old Testament prophets. We are in an even more privileged position than even the angels who long to gaze into what God has done for us. And Peter says the prophets were speaking for our benefit. The prophets were speaking to, to encourage us, to, to help us realize that these promises have been fulfilled through Jesus Christ. The prophets were serving not themselves, but us. And this is why we can be sure of our salvation, because God has already kept His promises made through the prophets, and He will keep His promises that when Jesus comes back, we will be fully saved when He returns. God has been faithful in the past. We've seen His faithfulness in the coming of Jesus, and God will not fail to be faithful to the end. Now, beloved, this is our privilege. We live in an age of fulfillment. And therefore, unlike the prophets, we can be even more sure of our salvation. In Christ, we now experience the grace the prophets prophesied about but never saw. And one day when Jesus returns to complete the work that He began, we shall be finally and fully saved. All of God's promises spoken by the prophets will find their yes and amen in Christ. Beloved, this good news of God's salvation has been preached to us by the Holy Spirit, speaking through faithful servants of God. So as we consider this living hope, as we consider this great salvation, we need to ask ourselves, have I believed the gospel? Have I believed this good news that has been preached to me? And am I still believing this gospel? Does this gospel that speaks of my living hope, does this gospel continue to motivate and drive me through life? Am I still believing this gospel? Our hope is in Christ alone. As it says in Lamentations 3, Jeremiah writes in these verses, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Jeremiah says, my hope comes from recalling this truth. And what is this truth that Jeremiah speaks of? He says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. 
And we began the service with the question, you know, what is our hope in life and death? And that question is actually taken from the New City Catechism. What is our only hope in life and death? And the only right answer, as God's, as God's Word tells us, is that we are not our own, but belong, body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Beloved, this is our living hope. He is our living hope. May God help us to know the hope that we have in Christ. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we give you thanks and praise. You indeed are a loving Father to us. And Father, as we come to you now in this moment, Father, we come confessing our sins. We come acknowledging how often we have placed our hopes too low. We have been satisfied with the things of this world. We have lived as though this world was all that there is, as though our lives were simply hoping in the things of this present world. Father, we pray that you would forgive us. Forgive us for how we have hoped in other things apart from you. And Father, we pray that you would work in our hearts through repentance. Help us to turn away and to forsake our false hopes that cannot save, that cannot stand the test of time. Help us to forsake these broken cisterns and indeed to turn to you the fount of living waters that we may drink more deeply from the well of your salvation. Father, help us to see that in Christ we have a hope that will never perish, a hope that will never be corrupted, a hope that will never fade away. And help us to begin to live our lives in light of this hope that we have, to take up our cross, to follow Jesus, trusting that he will not disappoint us. So, Father, help us to know the hope that we have in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.